We are live, and today I am joined here with Eric Chen, my good buddy, and we are going to demystify Kickstarters and crowdfunding and talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Eric, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. I mean, you and I, we go way back now. I feel like yeah. I can say that we've seen each other grow together, seen each other's journey. We've been able to hang out, party together. So I'm always happy to have an opportunity to chit chat with you, especially about business. So happy to be here. And this comes on the wake of a very successful Kickstarter campaign for Bobotage, the Boba card game, which is so incredible. I watched the thing grow. I, I love watching people take these in creative endeavors. And correct me if I'm wrong, like you've never made a game before. That was the first time yeah. I've made a product like that, right? Like my background has been in consumer electronics, product, private label, Amazon, yeah. you know, drop shipping before, or at least in the beginning. And so this one in itself was like a whole new industry for me. But to me, yeah, it's just go through the normal practices of building a business and we're able to get there. But yeah, as a game, completely new, I had to just kind of figure out if I was to create a game, what would that process be like? And we can get into it. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes to prove anybody who's listening, uh, the more you know, the more you can know. That kind of cascades into an action. So yeah, very, very excited to, to talk about this today. So how many, how many Kickstarters have you done personally? Officially only one other. Okay. In terms of the other ones that I was involved in, whether that was just like some small consulting gigs that has been, I don't know, probably three Technically, we did acquire, or like in our previous business, we did acquire a, a company that came straight out of Kickstarter okay. too. So that was like some involvement where they just finished. So we actually managed the entire fulfillment process and built out the e-com business from there. So that was probably another one. So I don't know, I would just say a handful as an involvement with, with Kickstarter. Good. So you, ca you came to this one with a healthy understanding. You've, you've gotten kind of understanding of the ecosystem first. Exactly. It was, I had a strong enough knowledge and foundation. I, I would say my old business partner was really involved in the Kickstarter world at its early stages. So when funding was starting to become a huge thing, when a lot of companies were hitting seven figures, he was involved in that. So he taught me most of everything I know today. And then of course, there was like this whole lull period between whether crowdfunding was even needed. Can people just go direct to market? And that's where we started to heavily lean towards. But of course, people were coming to us for Kickstarter consultations. And at that point, yeah, we dive into the questions of, hey, do you really need Kickstarter? Do you really need to do crowdfunding? What is the end goal? You know, you'll get different answers like, oh, we do need the funding or we do need the marketing or we just need proof of traction because we have a couple of investors saying that they will invest in us if we can hit a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand, right? And so that's why I know this is a conversation we'll, we'll get even deeper on about like what is that success metric that each company is going towards. But yeah, when when these people come to us, we have to break it down and, and figure out. So that was the level of exposure that I that I had. Great, great. So I kind of like to 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 off that is how would someone in your opinion, know that they're ready for a Kickstarter. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people kind of see the glory on it and they don't necessarily uh, understand how much work and time is put into it. it. One could take months. You know, I've done my own Kickstarter and it, it gets wild. I mean, let me just kind of do a generalized answer for this in the terms of every product, every industry is going to differ, right? If we're mm -hmm. talking about a consumer electronic product that you're starting from scratch, 
it's probably going to take you over a year to even get something up and running for the card game. I mean, you can do a, a temperature check too on how long it took you guys. The idea for me, it took about six months to develop the game. Then it only took me six weeks to create the game in terms of digital assets, artwork, commercial, all of that, which I don't think a lot of people or anyone can really do unless they have the experience that I had and the, you know, the connections that I already did to make it become a reality. So, I mean, truth be told, uh, I'd say if you have a card game like ours, if you know exactly what you're doing, it could very well take you six months. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that was well, about the same for us. It was it was a solid, I mean, it was a solid 90 days of playtesting the game itself. Ex- we're talking, exactly. We're talking on pieces of paper with like stickers on it. Like we weren't, we weren't ready to do anything for at least three months. Just like you said, because of our experience, we were able to kind of fast forward a few things and, and organize them properly to allow it to happen in a timely fashion. But yeah, it was about six months. It was about yeah. six months before we could be confident that we could offer something that's valuable. Exactly. So I think that's about right. It, I think we had about two months of true testing. And then the last like month was kind of... Um, a back and forth with the people who ended up being very involved with the playtesting process, like mm-hmm. the ones who gave real, real hard criticism and constructive feedback. Like those are the people I ended up saying, Hey, okay, well, here's 2.7, here's 2.8. Yeah. What do you think about 2.9? But a lot of like the majority of playtesters ended up only playing version 2.4. And then they probably never seen the next ver- few versions after that, but very like a huge two months process even like the test, the play testing, like, because I, I, I look at other games too, and it seems like they don't do a lot of play testing. Mm-hmm. I think they've, they configured a game and I mean, they can very well get lucky um, doing it this way. They just play tested like their very close group of friends and they're like, is it fun? It's great. Boom. You're done. But I, in my mind, I needed to have a wider breadth of like an audience to make sure that it's sound. And like, and something that I discovered while doing these play tests was people's there's like four or five different types of gamers, or at least in the board game sense, right? Like discovering that you have the person who's like a rule reader who wants to make sure that they're following the rules. Usually the person who's going to read the rule book and then explain to everyone else. And then everyone else is like very lazy. They're like, yeah, I don't need to read the rule book. I'll just play the game. And then it's like, usually those people aren't the most fun because they're not, you know, as you know, into the game itself. Then you have people who are like, super observant and super happy to like do it. And then you have like the big reactionary people who are like, you know, if you attack them, they'll, you know, get really crazy about it. And then there's people who just like, they just hate their lives and they don't know why they're, you know, hanging out on a Friday night, sitting there with their friends. They wish they could just be at home watching TV or something. Right. 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 A super disengaged person. So it's like just seeing an array of that. It was like an eye-opening experience. Cause yeah, if you just did it with friends and you knew your friends and everyone's like the very engaged people, that's not a really good test group. So yeah, three months play test. I think we had about officially when I chalked up the numbers, about 60 play testers. Yep. Yeah. Um, we had something about that. Yeah. And I, I asked everybody to try to play at least 10 times too. So gotcha. already a, a high average of, yeah, at least 600 play tests across the public. And then you know, myself, I've probably played a few hundred times, even by myself in my room. I'm player number one, two, three, and four in different <laughs> scenarios. So it's just a very, if you were to film 
create a, like a movie. And it's just like, this guy's a psychopath, just like <laughs> in his room, like rotating around, pretending to be another player thinking take on a different like, personality with a mustache exactly glasses mustache long hair wig i'm like like should i who am i gonna screw over like you know don't screw me over kind of thing and <laughs> good yeah. stuff so when when communicating with the play testers what how do i ask this what kind of communication and what kind of questions did you ask them i know this is actually the first time i ever learned about what's a net promoter score really get like the proper average on certain things are there any questions that you proposed to them that really give you a good insight and, and direction? I actually didn't do any of that. Really? Wild, yeah. wild, wild. Um, I, I took a different approach. So yep. I, yeah, I did create a survey prior to sending these play tests like kits out. I actually ended up, I think I only had like three people fill that out. And then after I saw what the answers were, I was just like, well, I don't think I need this type of information. So yep. Every play tester after that, I, what I realized what I wanted to do and what was more helpful for me was actually just watching them play. Yeah. So I, I asked a lot of the play testers to just let me observe them on zoom while they play for the first time. And while they play for the second time at a different time, you know, and basically a different time as well. And I realized I was, I'm able to get enough information purely by observation not asking these questions, not getting a survey done because to me, in contrast, I, cause I did watch the people who did fill out the survey. And to me, it seemed like a mismatch of mm -hmm. what they said and how they felt. So gotcha. for me, I'm no psychology major or anything, but I, the way I looked at it was this game to me was mechanically sound in the way that we built it. I just didn't know if it hit certain parameters in terms of like understanding of the game, how engaged are the people. And to me, that's through observations of body language. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm watching these people play, and that's why I, I mentioned like, there's that person who just looks like he just does not want to be there or he or she doesn't want to be there. It's because their body language said they're sitting back, they're disengaged. They're looking at their phone, they're, they're watching out. the television on the side. Right? And then the questions I do ask after the call, um, it's just like, is it fun for them? Because even if you ask them to write it out on paper, they'll probably just say yes. And they may very well have had the time of their life, even though they just look disengaged. But to me, I'm already chalking them as it's probably a three rating for them. I don't need them to tell me because they're disengaged. Everybody else whose body language indicated that they're leaning forward, they're looking at the table, they're looking at other opponents like cards, they're trying to figure out what their next step is. And if, as long as they were engaged through the entire process, I'm like, okay, cool. To me, that's the psychological behavior I'm looking for. And mm -hmm. if my observations were able to indicate that, that was good enough for me. Cool. Yeah. Very so cool. that, and then people who just naturally have a, a question or chatter about like, what does this card do? Like trying to decipher like what the, the game or the card itself was saying, they're never really going to write that down unless it was like a huge question mark. Yeah. The entire group. And in, in the moment, in the awesome. moment. Yeah. Cause they'll figure it out too. They're like, what does this mean? But in that instance, I write that down too, saying at 14 minutes and 32 seconds, Tim questioned this card. I have to go back and look at the language use to see if I need to change it. Yep. And through more and more observations, I mean, I still have all of these note cards here on my table. And it's like, if these questions just kept coming up in that instinctive moment, 
then I'm like, that's an issue. Yep. So that was the overall surveying like strategy that I had versus it just, Hey guys, fill out the survey after you play on a scale of one to 10, you know, this was this extremely satisfying or is, you know, and these are your friends too. They're not going to give you a shitty score either. Right. 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 So right. that's why I didn't think surveys would have been the best for, for me. Yeah. Observations were massive for us for exactly what you just mentioned too. Uh, where people would say, hey, what does this mean? Or the, the instruction, no, everybody takes instructions for granted. I bet you we wrote 30 different versions and we're probably gonna rewrite the version for this next version. It, it, it's, it's remarkable how difficult it is to be concise and clear. Uh, so when people would ask us questions, the first question we would have to write or ask back rather is what does it mean to you? To see if they're like, we were even close, you know, cause we could be so, so far off. Yeah, I yeah. think that we're so clear. And I would say for the, cause we did, we did do surveys and I would say the biggest value that we got from the survey was figuring out what was an acceptable price mm. So saying, Hey, I don't remember the exact questions. I'm, I can pull them up. They would be uh, at what price do you think it is a value? So we, we found out that somewhere between like 30 and 40 because we had, there was so many pieces. Yep. And the interesting thing about our game in particularly uh, or in particular, is that uh, that the most important mechanic is the person itself. So we 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 kind of just learned that as we were going. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was really fascinating to watch. And uh, yeah, as the survey was was, we got a lot of price understanding. Any any marketer who or like product person that's trying to configure pricing will probably think I'm insane. But I literally just in my mind, I said this is the price. I mean, I personally thought, I mean, given the experience that I had in product launching, I have an understanding and baseline of what a value, you know, should be, but I'm like, this is the price I'm going for. If people don't want to pay for it, they're not going to pay for it. People want it. They're going to get it. I'll create more hype around it to make it, you know, more valuable, but I'm going for my $25 base price. And that's it. Two years from now, ideally it'll last for two years. And then two years from now, you know, you, you drop the price, um, you know, for, for online sales and stuff, but to me, that's how I determined it. It's interesting that you did do, take, you took that as part of the survey. Um, but yeah, at the end, I felt like if I did it and people were like, oh yeah, I mean, I heard it in chatter. Those are some questions I did ask early on. And they're like, yeah, 19 bucks. And I'm just like, that's too low. I'm not going to make money. I'm still going to price it at yeah, 20. Yeah. And it's just one of those bets that like, yeah, people still backed it at, you know, $25 on, on Kickstarter, no doubt. And okay, I don't think, for how we performed, even us having it a $20 product was going to make a, make a big difference or anything. So I do, I'll mention though, on the survey, the only thing I asked people to do was log the time that it took for them to play every round. Yep. That was the only real data point that I wanted. And it wasn't until I had about, I think a hundred play tests in total that it did indicate on that version was people were playing like 35 to 40 minute average meaning some people took over an hour. Some people did hit my 20 minute time. And I'm like, man, if my average time is 40 minutes or 35 minutes, that's too long of the game I wanted. So that to me forced me to recalculate the mechanics of the game to make sure the pacing was much better. And I don't think that's something play testers could really, you know, get feedback on besides either they felt like it was too long. And even people who played for 45 minutes were like, yeah, the game was fun. But no one was going to tell me, Eric, I thought the game was too long. You should change this, this, and this, and that. It was me saying, 
everybody took too long. In my opinion, I'm trying to make this a 20 minute game. So how do I go do that? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. One like- of the, there was a study that we came across and I really wish I had the title of it, but it was, ta- it was talking about replayability. Yeah. Um, really need to hit under 30 minutes because that, 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 that there creates a resistance of, I want to play more. And if it's over, like no one wants to play Monopoly twice in a row. Exactly. Absolutely. If you're there for two hours, yeah. ideally some, I'm the guy who flips the board. Yeah. So. Yeah. But when you're playing games like, uh, like Monopoly deal and phase 10, where it's like this rapid fire, you can't get enough. You can't mm-hmm. get enough. Yep. Uh, yeah. And that was, that was the most important part for me. And that's why I, I, this is how I really thought about it. Like, yeah. Monopoly deal is one of my all-time favorite games. You have all these other games like exploding kittens, unstable unicorns. And for me, I really thought about what made these games so fun. And I'm like, how do I replicate it in that sense of having that feeling and that style? And to me, I did decipher that it's because these are so short, it's non-committal. Like if I was to have a game night with friends to play Settlers of Catan, I'm like, that in itself is 35, 40 minute already. You may only have time for one game. Yep. But the whole thing was, if you can play one game for 20 minutes, that might get people to be playing two rounds or even three rounds, even though they said we only have time for, you know, an hour, they might end up playing for two hours because yeah. it's, it's perceived to be short. Yep. It's the same thing as like league of legends. Most of those games, ideally, if you win, if you win in 20 minutes, you're feeling good, right? You won. You're like, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Mm-hmm. You lose. You're like, damn it. Let's, let's go back and try to win. Right. There's that psychological factor that I was trying to hit. So that's why for me, 20 minutes. So I even got the game down for a two player should average about 10 minutes or so. Oh, cool. That in itself is supposed to be rapid fire. We're talking about like my friends who have boyfriends or girlfriends are just like, they're trying to kill time for 30 minutes. They're either going to play one round because that's a 20 minute mark and they happen to finish in 10. They're going to play another round. Yeah. So. Yeah. I always travel with monopoly deal. Like that's just goes in my pocket all the time now. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Now it's going to be a sabotage. So, yep. No, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so going back to when you had the closest thing to a version 1.0 to when actually hitting this, the start button on the actual campaign, what did that process look like? What does it, what does it look like from the, you started from that one point and then you're, you're telling everybody pile in. Yeah. I'll just hold this up to you in, in our you know video recording here, but this is, this is version 1.0. Right. Bunch of index cards. Bunch of index cards. Rubber band wrapped around it. Yep. Rubber band, Sharpie, which I realized after the fact, once we started playing, it's like, this is technically see-through. Like when we started <laughs> playing, we're like, we could easily read like <laughs> what card we're holding and stuff. But in terms of like 1.0, that whole process, yeah, it went from index cards to, um, I didn't mark it down in terms of like what version this is. Because to me, in my mind, it's like, it literally sprinted between point zero to like 2.0 in a matter of weeks. Right. And to me, that was us modularly, modularly switching out different cars, different functions, looking at the numbers on our Excel sheet saying, Hey, we have 12 milks. We have 20 green teas, 20 black teas. And we're like, you know, I think this is a lot. So let's take out eight and then just logging that into every sheet. And it wasn't until, yeah, we got to 2.4 where we're like, obviously we had a few friends play these, these, you know, early 1.0 rounds. But once we got to 2.4, where I spent the time to design a printable PDF version for people, that's where I sent it out to playtesters. And then, yeah, about what we just discussed, two months of playtesting, observations, going back to the drawing board. It took about 
um, 2.9 or version 2.9 was basically the closest to final we got to, or at least where I felt confident that we can start designing the cards. So just to timestamp everything, July, 2020 was concept. August was the first index card drawing. Uh, September, October was just a lot of the back and forth on this version 1.0. And at that point it was very slow. I was like, maybe we meet like one hour every week if we're lucky, you know, like, Hey, let's play one round. Let me go back to the drawing board myself and then back into it. November and December, based on the holidays, assuming if, you know, people do get locked up together, they, they'll, they'll be with some family time to play. So that's what we did. So basically from November to December, they started play testing it. I started working with my artist to try to create the artwork for the cards. And I had issues with that artist. So the artist that developed what we have today, isn't the same artist that I started with in November. Okay. I ended up finding one that literally started January 2nd of 2021. And if you look at your calendar today for the day we launched on February 23rd, technically we delayed it by one week. If you look at the date from January 2nd till February 23rd, we went from zero artwork in terms of concept art and card designs to a full video production to card artwork, to like a mock design box, logo redone and everything to launch the entire campaign. And that's what I mean by like, I don't think anyone who's just starting off without the business experience, the marketing know-how, the branding, you know, having knowledge and branding, having the resources already. So like just to paint the picture, my graphic designer has already been with me full-time for over a year by this time point, right? So I already had a graphic designer that I trusted. Most people that I work with are on a referral basis. So I don't use Fiverr. I don't use Upwork. I don't go find these contractors. I only work with people most of the time that is referred to me for a level of trust factor and validation. Yeah. All right. So January 2nd, we started 30% of the artwork because on January 30th is when we filmed the, the, the video production. And something that, you know, most people who are always on the fence about, and this is a topic of conversation for crowdfunding is how much should you invest into the video component for Kickstarter? I would say that's the most important piece gotcha. to get right. I would invest majority of the, the capital that you have to invest in Kickstarter. You should invest a huge chunk of it into video. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean, correct me if I'm wrong, everything has to have crazy special effects, but the storyline, the, the storytelling, everything, the proper way, the storytelling, the marketing, the, the way you, you know, display your product or showcase it like that has to be sound in terms of marketing. Yeah. You have to make sure you're hitting the psychological factors of the reason why people buy, will they stay engaged in the video? Are you just talking about its features or is it something that is really bringing something out of the consumer who's watching it to incentivize them to say, yes, I want this. I want to learn more. I want to take action on it, whatever that might be. And I want to right. tell people about it. Yes. Yeah. There's, is there a viral factor? Is it something I want to share? Am I excited or proud to share with other people too? So, I mean, if you look at back at like the comments that we had on our Facebook ads, people were like, I didn't mind. People were like, 
my goodness, this video was so cringy, right? Hmm. And it's like, to me, that is not a negative thing that sparks curiosity for it other people reading that. To Facebook. make a comment. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's social proof right there. It's, it's engagement. And yeah. I'm like, I think I probably responded. It's like, yes, it was cringy and I loved it. Right? Like, <laughs> and that was the whole point. It. it was supposed to be yeah. this very cheesy, like 2000s Pokemon Yu-Gi-Oh cartoon feel to it. We, I mean, if you really watch the commercial, there is like this little hint of when they're talking, their audio doesn't match up because you know, in those old, like, yep. like yep. right. Cartoon where there's like, like, oh, they're Kung Fu movies and stuff. And they're just like, oh, you like their mouth's moving, but the audio is not matched <laughs> up. Like we had that small component to it. So every like 2000s nostalgia factor, we try to throw into this video. So January 30th is when we set the, the video recording. To me, that's when everything became real. It was mm. like, holy crap, this is a huge deadline because now we're committing to the crap, the crew for the video shoot. We're committing to the actors who are going to come in to play the parts for our commercial. And so I'm like, we need to make sure we have all of our stuff done. So keep in mind, artwork wasn't done. We had artwork. One third of the artwork slated to be done by January 15th. So we had one week to go to print at a local shop. So we had prints cards to display in the commercial itself. Gotcha. And this is why like, there's some things where people do and don't need ready. I'm helping like a company right now with like a book and I'm saying, this is what they need to have done. And this is what they don't need to have done. So they have time to work on it. Right. For us, it was, we just needed one third of the cards because that's all I needed in my mind to show, to display how the game worked. Yeah. But technically two thirds of the designs never existed at that time. So when we got the cards, Basically from January 15th to the 30th, yes, my artist was still working on the new designs for all the other stuff, but we were focused on making sure their commercial was going to be ready to go. We had all the props. We had all that stuff going. Um, we shot it. The guy was the guy who shot it. His name is Taylor Chan. He's part of a, a big like YouTube production or YouTubing or YouTube company, not YouTube, but their own production company that primarily puts videos on YouTube called Wong Fu Productions. So he himself, very talented in directing, film work, um, art. He ended up taking on the digital graphic animations when I told him I'll hire someone else to try to go do that. But he knew how to do it. So he just did it himself, knocked it out right away. And then I think he turned it around in seven days. Wow. Um, that whole, com I mean, if you, you have your audience go watch this commercial, you'll tell like the production value was, is pretty top notch. And for him to turn that around in seven days, it's like, yes, we're utilizing the best talent that we had in our network to shoot it. And so after that commercial was done, we, the one thing we didn't do was the Kickstarter campaign. I didn't have the rewards fully configured yet. I was still figuring out what the best incentives were going to be. Our pre-gen marketing wasn't done yet. I would tell everybody to do their pre-marketing campaign at least two months before, like set up an email to collect, sorry, set up ads to collect emails, kind of a, like a pre-marketing campaign to showcase, Hey, like we're launching something soon, you know, subscribe to your email. So, you know, you know, what's coming soon. And basically we did not have any of this stuff ready. I would, I believe the timeline was we anticipated launch February 16th. We 
I launched ads, I think February 4th to do a pre-marketing campaign. And the only reason I delayed it was because we, I was very particular in keeping this product and project under wraps. Mm, okay. So I, everybody I talked to, I, I think even you did too. Like I had everybody sign an NDA mm. up until February, like every single person I spoke to NDA, NDA, NDA. No one was mentioning that there's a Boba card game out and like being built out right now because there's nothing like this out in the U S market. So the fact that anyone to me, in my mind, anyone who was coming out to market just for the sheer fact that it said, it says Boba card game is already a novelty idea in itself that people would be excited about. So I didn't want anyone to technically beat me to market. When I first came up with the idea, there was no one out there really with this. And, but apparently in November, some company in Singapore launched their card game called a bubble tea, which is the alternative name to Boba, a bubble tea card game. Just so happens that they're out in Asia. So their reach over here in America wasn't as strong to me. It wasn't a big deal. I actually didn't, they didn't pop up on my radar until February. So I just didn't realize anyways, we launched February 4th. Started running ads and then our ad account got banned mm-hmm. one, one week into it. And if most people who have run ads or are familiar with Facebook ads, our violation wasn't anything big. I'll explain it in a second. But the fact that you have to go through customer support through Facebook is pretty much a nightmare scenario. Like for us, I knew we would get our account reinstated. No problem. It's just the fact that it might take us three to four weeks for us to even get our account back. Mm-hmm. So I'm freaking out. We were anticipated to launch one week from that day. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I was freaking out. I was like, I think we should still launch. Like we'll delay it by one week and we'll still launch without Facebook ads. And you know, Facebook ads would be a large revenue source oh, yeah. for a campaign, right? And I thought to myself, let me go learn how to do set up like the YouTube ads and all that stuff and see if we can get lucky. I think it cut out our revenue potential by over 50% without having Facebook. But I said, Hey, we already set this deadline in stone. I don't really care to wait. We're going to launch. This is something that I'll, I'll tell people today was that like, we got very lucky because we were able to get our account reinstated within three days. That's amazing. Right. And it's only for the fact that like, I've been in this business for a long time in terms of like entrepreneurship, building a strong network and connections. So I had people refer me into, into Facebook internally to help expedite our case. And to me, this isn't like, I hate asking for favors. Like, I I don't think you probably haven't really ever hear me ask for like a real favor by any means. And so for the fact that I had to ask someone to ask someone else was already killing me. Yeah, for sure. Right. And I know, knowing that it's like a huge stretch. So like, I appreciate my friend who stuck their neck out for me to ask, to make this big ask. And they got us, they got us our account back. And I was just like, holy crap, we're back in business. Let's just power through and and go for it. I ended up doing a pre-marketing campaign. We generated about 300 emails in about seven days or so. And that was that I didn't have any more time to do it. Even though we got our account back, I was mentally drained by that whole stress. Of course, of course. Right. And so I didn't really spin up our, our, 
our ads back up prior to launch. Or I did for like two days, but it was just like, I didn't really pay attention to it. And then we, the day we launched, we didn't have our campaign fully set up. We were still fixing the graphics all the way up until 6 a.m. The morning that we were launching on a February 23rd, Tuesday, whatever that Tuesday was at 10 a.m. That was when the campaign was going to go live. 6 a.m. we finished, or at least in my mind, it was close enough to finishing. And then we, I went to bed, woke up at 7 a.m., so one hour sleep, took a shower. One of our team members sent me breakfast, godsend, because I probably wouldn't have eaten. 9 a.m., went back to work on the computer, the global team was still on online working on, you know, anything that they it was on their list and then 10 AM everything launched and yeah, that was pretty much it. So. And then 2 PM, you actually came onto my other show. Oh yeah. Hustle live where we actually, it's the game show. So that was fun. I remember seeing that day and you just looked at me and you're like, Tim, I'm tired. <laughs> I was like, all right, man, you got this. I know. No, you." Yeah, that is correct. We, I coordinated, I tried coordinating a lot of like, activity for the day to get the momentum or keep the momentum going. And yeah, yeah, we had our, our call slated. I forget what number we were at already. I think, I mean, we hit our $10,000 in four hours. That's what I was going to say. I'm pretty positive. It was already funded. Yeah. So we, our goal is 10,000 publicly. We hit 10,000 in four hours. Phenomenal. We did our thing. And I remember us talk, I think did we, I feel like we were talking, it was like 12,000 at the time of the start. And then by the end of our call, it was like, I don't know, maybe 14, 15,000 or something like that. That Well, that whole day was mayhem. I kept on checking it and it was just like, <laughs> just popping up two and a half grand, five grand. Yeah. It was a really, really wild first day. Yeah. So for us by the next day, exactly 24 hours and one minute, we <laughs> hit $20,000. So that's awesome. That's what I like to chalk it up to one full day, $20,000. It was a fun experience. Yeah. And it, it, it takes so much to leading up to that. Oh, that's, I mean, that, that story started two months earlier, right? Yeah. Just that one perfect first day. Yeah. Not to mention everything. The other 29. That, yeah. Everything that led up to it in terms of the two months was like artwork because the, the artwork was a little tougher. We, I actually created a new standard for, for ourselves because if you really think about like card games, people just use normal pictures of like a picture of a hamburger, a picture of a, you know, a fish that, a, you know, a fifth grader could draw. I ended up hiring like this very professional artist because I wanted to create the potential for a topping for characters, for mm-hmm. the eventual opportunity to either make a cartoon, a comic strip. So people could relate to these characters like, and based on I'm, I'm Asian American. So for me, it's, it's one of those things where there's really no cartoon like out there today that is necessarily Asian influenced. Right. So we're talking about Raya, the last dragon was probably the closest thing in today's time as like Asian American representation Yeah, in Disney beyond what we're talking about. Mulan is like, was from, is in China, right? It is the China yeah. history thing. We're, we're talking about Asian American, right? Yeah. There was, there's no culture for Asian American. It's being developed as we speak. And so for me, it's like, what if, you know, every kid who's like three years old today, by the time they're four, five, six, seven years old, they're watching some crazy cartoon about boba toppings, adventuring around the world and getting yeah. to, you know, crazy fun. And I'm like, cause the whole concept of, of boba is innately from Asia. And there's this whole culture here in America for boba tea. Right. Yeah. 
So the whole artist was, I, we just went back and forth. Like I'm trying to create soul souls and personalities around these characters. It's not just blank eyes. Like some of these characters are cute, like the existing Boba plushies and stuff like that. You might see on like, there's one behind me right now. Yep, there's yep. blank eyes, right? It's cute, but like, there's no soul. You can't relate to this. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like, I wanted to create characters that people can see personality into. You can see their reaction. You can kind of, there's a backstory to all these characters. So we had this whole session of like, from January, that was, there's a whole session about every character has a backstory that we haven't really shared yet, but that innately pushed their personality, the style of character and artwork that went into it. So it was a whole, it was a whole thing, but that to me was thinking long-term. I, I, I really love that you're doing that. And I really think that is, that's business 2.0 really. Cause you're not, you're not, we're beyond the point where we, a business is transactional. It's there's an emotional agreement that we have now. It's not just give me this for this money. It's give me, give me this feeling for a while for this money and mm. remember me. And it's, it's, business is very, very different right now. So I'm really loving that, that you're, you're taking this approach. Cause we did the same thing with our game. We're kind of building out some other things too, but we have the, so with, with our game side hustle, Rich Rock is our, is our, the person that, that, that we we've created that emphasizes all of the entrepreneur struggle, you know, what we came from, what we had to go through all that stuff. And we really, we really loved bringing him to life. And we, we mm-hmm. kind of did it by accident. I'm not going to say it was planned Yeah. yeah. when we were doing it. It was like, Oh no, I, f- I feel this story. I feel that hardship. So it's really cool that, that, that you're building that out. And it's really excellent that you have multiple characters because that can go into so many different directions, you know, comic books, cartoons, plushies. Yeah. We're, we're talking about relatability, at least in my, in my eyes, like I wanted to have like, obviously Boba, Bo, the Boba character is like the main, you know, one, but like, you know, the lychee character you'll see in the personality and especially in the action cards, like it's, it's all these like subtle hints that we've mm-hmm. placed into it. It's like, this character is the bold one, the, strong one it's a female character and in the artwork already without any backstory is she's the one holding a shield protecting boba who's like cowering behind her and it's just like what is this story behind like why is lychee the one protecting and why isn't you know bo the main character the you know the superhero that any traditional story would be excellent so i'm and that's like part of it where it's like you know we want this world to become better. We want to empower people in general, but obviously like, you know, women too, more confidence in all these things. Like I've worked with, you know, so many different groups and people and projects and teams. And it's like, I can tell in conversations, there is absolutely no reason for the females in our group to be shying away or just apologizing to me for absolutely no reason. Right. And I'm like, I have to remind them like, don't apologize. There's nothing to apologize about. Right. So that's, that's kind of like a lot of the inspirations behind these characters the personalities behind it, what they represent, what's their personality. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, so moving forward, what, at what point during the, during the campaign, were you comfortable placing an order with your manufacturer? Uh, technically not till after we finished that, that, yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I know a lot of people are saying like, always just get your first, uh, your first batch before it's over. So you can catch like an early bird wave, and then do a second wave. So it was definitely, cause we, we waited until the end too. We yeah. The end too. Yeah. So you're, you're feeling the same way. 
it, for us, it was the same as you guys where while I was able to, I mean, this is kind of talking ahead of myself, but 98% of everything we planned for this entire campaign, I'm going to just say 98% because let's just t- chalk up to the two things that I miscalculated on out of a hundred items, right? Let's just <laughs> estimate one was the Facebook ads. I didn't account for it to yeah. be banned. It was a human error on our team's end. I mean, in short, basically for those people who are curious, we, we were running ads to a landing page to collect emails. The idea was we were going to do a redirect URL into the Kickstarter page for when we go live one week prior to going live, we accidentally put the redirect URL to the Kickstarter page, which was a dead Kickstarter page. Cause it's not live yet. So Facebook in itself believed we were just sending people to a sketchy site that wasn't working. So it's like, uh-huh. so that's what they banned us for. I, I remember, I, sorry, I mentioned, I was going to say why we got banned. So it's a very easy explanation of like, this yeah. was the mistake. Here's all the screenshots. This is what we were trying to do. We weren't doing anything shady. So reasonable from Facebook side. Yeah. yeah. But that's why it was just the fact that if it was a normal customer support rep from wherever they hire their customer support team from, it's going to take a long time. So that was the issue. The other part that was miscalculated, not miscalculated, but I had very lofty goals for Mm. how this game was going to go. I personally believe we were going to achieve $250,000 on this Kickstarter campaign. Not that we would, but it was my goal that I believe we had the capabilities and resources to hit 250,000. Sure. Where we ended up falling short of this 250,000, multiple factors. Let me answer your question in terms of like the inventory count. It wasn't until we finished. I was able to accurately count very early on about two weeks in of where I believe we were going to end up. I think around $40,000 on our campaign. I was like, I think we'll hit 140,000 at the end of it. I was like, I think that's what we'll pace to at that point. But unless we start to see a huge you know, increase on the, the ad side, that's probably where we're going to end up. Um, then we had big, big days, the few days afterwards. And even the analytics showed that we were going to hit 200,000, right? I was like, cool. So typically in Kickstarter, you, you will usually see a very flat curve from the initial spike up from when you start your first day should be your biggest day. And then from there, it's kind of just should taper off. You should have consistent sales. And then it's supposed to spike up in the last week. Right. There's supposed to be marketing effort to say, Hey, there's one week left. There's a lot of FOMO marketing. Don't miss out last chance, all these things. Um, we probably had our worst performance in our very last week. And at the time of what was happening is because in my opinion, no, I it's, it's hard to say whether it's true or not, but it's, to me, it's a reasonable explanation. This was at the time, and I mean, it's still ongoing, but the, the Asian hate things right. that were going on, Asians are being killed, attacked, old, our elders are being attacked in public, all those things. So if you imagine a lot of social media, at least in our side, because that was our strategy with social media, was the attention, the headspace that people were in, especially if we're mostly you know advertising towards Asian Americans, people were not in the right headspace to be buying a toy. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I could see that for sure. So we even, we had a huge influencer campaign set up for that Tuesday. That was what, two days before our last day. So that Tuesday, we actually had a huge campaign with like 50 influencers to do a huge promotion to help push out, say, hey, you know, these guys, their goals is an exciting game, back it, there's only two days left. 
we had just three people reach out to us a few days prior saying, Hey, because of everything that's happening right now, we don't have the mental space. We don't feel like it's right to be sharing and promoting your product. I said, that's totally fine. I'm all in support of it. You know, please do. What we ended up doing was proceeding to tell every influencer that we had chalked up saying, you guys don't have to post. If you guys don't want to, um, we're not asking you guys to, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about contracts that we have. You guys don't need to post. So that Tuesday, we probably just had a handful of people help promote it. I was not in the right mental health space either because I felt bad too. I'm like, people are dying and I'm over here waving my hands like, Hey guys, check out my product. Come buy my thing. Right? Like, yeah, it was just really, really poor timing. So to me, I personally believed we would have paced for 200,000 easy. So where we finished off at 148,000, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure we would have easily hit like a 10, 12, $15,000 day on those days to, you know, make up the, the difference. Our last day was our second biggest day. And if you really think about if, oh, we, wow. if we launched at 10 a.m., that means it finished at 10 a.m. So if everybody's waking up, seeing our very last day, our last push saying, few hours left, check it out. That was our biggest spike up. And we had a lot of people reach out to me afterwards, like five, 10, an hour later, they're like, Hey, we missed the campaign. Can we still back it? And I, I just tell them no. So <laughs> I was like, come back later, follow my Instagram. Like there's nothing right now. Everybody missed, you missed it. You missed it. People who are even canceling their orders today, like they don't know what the secret announcement I have that's going to go out in like a week or two. If they feel like they missed out, I'm sorry, man. You guys made the, the choice to back out. Like I'm rewarding every single backer who, you know, is risking their money to put into this game that didn't exist yet to reward them, to make sure they have something special, to make sure they're the priority. Mm -hmm. And I have friends who reached out to me saying like my close friends, like, ah, I missed it. I'm like, what do you mean you missed it? Like, can we <laughs> still peace? Yeah. I'm like, I asked them straight up. They're like, I'm sorry. I missed it. Yada, yada, yada. I'm like, we forgot. I'm like, did I not? advertise enough for you did i not spam my social media enough to remind you people and they're like oh you did actually yeah sorry that's my bad i'm like you're gonna have to wait in line like everybody else now yep yep that's too funny that's too funny so when it when it comes to the inventory so how how did you figure out how much inventory actually to to purchase so do you do a percentage wise for whenever you're going to be actually launch the store? Great question. Pretty straightforward. Uh, out of the 4,008 backers, we have 5,500 units that's going out to backers. Okay. Right. 5,500 units to me gave me enough confidence to say 10,000 units Great. Uh, for first order. So we'll have 4,500 units extra. Um, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm not really greedy is not the right word, but I'm not really eager to sell it right away. I myself am creating a personal challenge as to whether I have enough marketing chops to create hype with our product. Okay. So you imagine like, you know, I forget what these brands are called because I'm not into like the streetwear stuff, but you got Supreme, you got the hundreds, a hundred thieves or something. I don't even know. Shoes, Nike shoes, right? These, all these exclusive drops, you got this cult following, you got this like really big hype. I want to see if I'm capable of creating a line out the door. Okay. That's, that's my biggest thing because technically, yes, the moment I have inventory land, 
we ship out our 5,500 units to our backers. Technically, I can go straight to online e-commerce and start selling my product, right? I am not selling those units um, okay. on our e-commerce. I There's two folds to this thing of, can I create hype? Can I create a demand? And then how do I support small businesses who might need it more than I do? Copy. Right? So we're talking about boba shops mainly. The strategy was, let me put these, sorry, let me preface this. These initial 10,000 units, 5,500 units are going out. What I mentioned with the surprise announcement that's probably going out in a week or two is that there's an exclusive card that I didn't display in this game. Okay. During the campaign, right? So that's why to me, I probably miss out on 20% of revenue by not indicating this on the campaign, but people are going to get a surprise with the game. The 10,000 units we're never making again. We'll be making a normal batch of inventory afterwards. Gotcha. So for me, these exclusive games would only be available whether you're a backer or only in Boba shops. Mm, okay. So whether it's going to be, this is, I'm still determining a road tour around California for Boba shops, doing a pop-up event, selling a hundred, only a hundred units or 50 units, whatever that number may be in front of Boba shops, people will line out the door to go pick up their game and go buy Boba. That was the idea, right? Hmm. So the fact that there's only 4,500 units left that you can only get at a Boba shop, at a participating Boba shop, whether I'm there or not, and that it's an exclusive unit that's never going to be made again, we're, we'll see what happens. Could be a total flop, could be a big success. Maybe all I need is just one video of a line of 50 people, and that's enough content to make it look like there's enough hype, right? Yeah, for and that's sure. the marketing side uh, of my brain. And that's the idea. And then after that, I'm anticipating 20,000 units for the next inventory order. Copy. And, that, and that's with its own, its own version. It's nothing like the, the initial 10,000. It'll be the same game, same game mechanics. It's just, it won't have this exclusive card that's not going to be designed. Okay. Let's just, let's just call it like, yeah, the first edition Charizard that's not, you know, coming back in these future games. Cool. That's a really good idea. I actually, I like that. I, I like surprises. I really, really enjoy surprises. And I think people do too. Like when you, it's the whole under promise over deliver. You know, that's, that's how I was brought up in business. And yep. it's, it's, if you can surprise someone, even if it's something small, it's, it's, it's one of the most unique ways to thank someone before, before even getting to the part of, of thank you. Like you've thought about this so far in advance, you really want to wow the person. And that shows that they, that you care about them. And I think that that speaks it volumes. So yeah, good on you for doing that. That's pretty rad, man. Yeah. That's pretty rad. So I am delaying revenue and profit on my side this year to do this. But to me, it's an entertaining challenge for myself. I can't wait to see how it plays out. I really can't wait to see how it plays out. Yeah. So going now that you, now you're going to be placing this order, everything's going to be coming in. You start this, uh, you said in one week, you're going to be doing the announcement in a week or two. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Um, what's, what's next for the, for the game itself? Um, so prior to our call, I actually just brought back. So we had our main artist who, who drew most of the artwork. I just brought him back on to help us with our Instagram comic idea. 
Mm -hmm. So in order to grow our social channel for what I believe is the most engaging strategy, at least for our sector, would be humor, comedy, relatable meme style humor in terms of a comic with our characters. So this way we build the personality archetypes. Uh, People get to know these characters. There's a storyline, not necessarily storyline, but enough stories to kind of get it across. What's going to be shareable? People want to tag their friends. What's relatable? That's the next step. I am going to try to learn the whole process of cartooning in terms of a longer term play about can we make YouTube short YouTube short cartoons to place online for parents to have this as a nice, wholesome, friendly cartoon to watch on the side. That's kind of the idea that probably won't roll out yet earliest, probably next year. And then in terms of the game, the product expansion pack has always been top of mind. Sure. And I think for those who are curious about Kickstarter itself, this is a strategy that most games or successful games do already, which I purposely decided to go against was you see a lot of these new games that came out to Kickstarter as like a prototype or, you know, first, first game ever. How do you already have an expansion pack that's available when yeah. this is supposed to be the first game? right? That's a little odd. So it's either you create a whole game and you carve your game out by 30% and then you call that an expansion pack, right? That's Mm -hmm. one strategy. And then you incentivize people to have a larger order value purchase of one game and one expansion pack, whatever that may be. Some might be very true and honest to the way they, they configured it. That's totally fine. I just specifically told myself, let me create this base game. I can do an expansion pack later. I knew I'm leaving money off the table by not including the expansion pack to then make it a $40 game per unit, right? That would have easily put us at a $250,000 goal. I mean, you'd think, you'd think about it, selling a $25 product to even hit 150,000, that's a lot of units not to yeah. sell through, right? So for me, expansion pack is the next step. Uh, I will disclose, I mean, it's not for sure yet, but matcha is pretty much the theme of the next expansion theory. Boba in itself is already a very popular drink. It's still growing, but matcha in itself is its own sector, but it's very popular within boba shops today as an alternative you know, ingredient as a drink. So that's where we're going. I have this whole vision and introductory of like Avengers inspired introduction video about how it would play out. Um, So yeah. That's great. And you don't have to go into these details if they're not solidified yet, but with an expansion, do you think Kickstarter is a good uh, platform to one, announce it and two, kind of get that, that vibe from the customers that they do want it? Yeah. So I personally would not sell or launch an expansion pack on Kickstarter. I would just use the audience that you've built off of your Kickstarter campaign and utilize your Mm -hmm. platform. So what's really great is that the four, like for me, for example, the 4,000 people I got from this Kickstarter, I basically have access to this update section on their platform forever, right? There's this, even though you can carve out your own email database, this update section, you can utilize all the time. Their landing page, because Kickstarter in itself as a website in terms of an SC play is a strong website already. They have a strong domain authority, right? Yeah. 
the fact that this campaign exists, you they give you a landing page already of where you want to redirect people to. So by having that section, like you go back to any existing camp campaign today, you got unstable unicorns, you have exploding kittens. They're just redirecting you back to their shop and to say, hey, there's this new game out. Right. Just for the sheer organic traffic that's going to come in somehow magically through Kickstarter, that's at least one little sector of, of traffic that's going to get you more people. The expansion pack, um, as an introduction, it's just to utilize your audience to say, hey, here's the new news. To me, that's pretty much it. There is another company. I forget what it's called, but I looked at it the other night. They did launch their expansion pack, like four expansion packs as a Kickstarter campaign. I thought that was pretty cool. Having four sets available for different themes as part of an expansion pack for the game. That's pretty wild. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty unique. And that was because they built their expansion packs off of their initial users feedback. And so there is one of those really good case studies about, hey, we listened to our audience and we spent the time to build what you guys wanted and this is it. Yeah, that's actually interesting you say that. We just had a meeting the other day about the game and that's that's exactly how we're going forward. I think it's ridiculous to think you know what anybody wants unless they tell you. That's communication one, especially with your customers. Yeah, I mean, it's always great to surprise them, but for the core, definitely get their feedback. Definitely get their feedback. Yeah, it also makes them feel special and part of the game when, when you actually ask and you listen and you implement what they, what they, what they let you know. That's fantastic. Uh, any, any things people, any misunderstandings do you think that people have as far as Kickstarter? Maybe how easy something is or another pitfall that a lot of people don't consider. Yeah, I mean, this is something we, we had chatted about previously as well you know, off, off this record was just the idea of the perceived value of Kickstarter. Mm. Right. And it's something I tell people I'm, I'm, I'm totally open to discussing the numbers. I tell my friends today, I think I shared it on like a webinar. I think that was during our, I think that was during my, when my campaign was live, I told them that my own budget itself was $30,000 to start. I set aside 30,000 of my own cash to create this whole process and project and a lot of the feedback I got or from that webinar itself, I had people reach out to me and like one person from corporate Disney, because he, he was like him and his wife wanted to, you know, launch a game too. They had some interest and in, like $30,000 seems like a lot just for a card game. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yes and no, but I broke down the numbers for him. Yeah. And once he saw those numbers, he's like, wow, that all adds up real quick and it makes sense. Yeah. And it goes back to the very beginning when we talked about like, yeah, video production is a huge thing. Like, yeah, technically video production should have probably cost more than the product itself. And we're talking about heavily investing into the marketing side. We're talking about what is your long-term strategy? What is the long-term play? I'm very fortunate that I have enough margins to play with that is very lucky that our Facebook ads did provide us a nice ROI on it. I break down the numbers or I did like a reverse calculations of how much output. So even though I allocated $30,000 into the campaign, I'm spending about $130,000 mm. in expenses for it, right? So I'm not telling people, make sure you have $130,000 to start a business. It was 
I'm starting $30,000 and that's how much I'm willing to lose. It's just the fact that part of your $30,000, you need to allocate into marketing in hopes that your performance-based marketing, AKA Facebook ads is going to get you that return. That means you can then scale, right? So out the door, the total ad spend I had plus the fees for the agency that ran our ads was $38,000. That's all said and done. For Facebook ads and fees. Yes. That's really not bad. Not on, yeah, not on, what is it? 148? On 148, 38,000 on 148. Not bad at all. Right. But technically, yeah, I did not have $38,000 just lying around. It was, I believed $5,000 was enough to get me my marketing up and running enough pre and enough return on the ad spend to get us there on a performance basis. And that's when we started scale up. So the first few days was, I think $400, $500, amped up to $800. And at the peak, we were spending, I think $1,800 a day in ad money. Yeah. So, so it kind of acts like a fractional reserve, right? So you're spending money to know you're getting enough to pay that back and get some to spend more money. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's something that a lot of people either are not ready to comprehend or perceive if they haven't had experience in launching an e-commerce business or running ads, that's what people are going for. Like, I mean, I ran digital ad strategies at Google for Google marketing solutions. So we're talking about Google ads, YouTube commercials, all that stuff. And it's just saying, do you have the available budget, potential budget to be spending in the event that your campaign performs, right? Wow. I, I wasn't telling companies like, hey, do you have $500,000 set aside, right? It's, do you have $50,000 set aside to start? And if it's going well, do you have enough cash to be pumping in so we can scale your campaign out? Yeah. And the same principles for Facebook, right? The other thing I would say is, especially for Kickstarter, like the perceived value and success. I myself am very disappointed in my own performance, (laughs) to be honest. I said I wanted $250,000 and I tried to get there. I became very lazy in the last two weeks of the campaign Mental headspace, obviously, within the last week, based on the social societal instances or issues that were going on, but I was burnt out mid-campaign. We're talking about, I could have pushed more. I could have followed up more. I could have found more influencers. I could have done a harder sell on these influencers. I should have invested more money into influencers. I budgeted $5,000 for influencer campaign. Can you guess how much I ended up spending out of that $5,000 budget? I can't even imagine. $800. Really? Yeah. Just for influencer campaign, which I mean, technically it didn't pay out. One thing I wish I did and I, I total oversight and we're, we're talking about, you know, me, I I have e-commerce experience, all this stuff. I had a complete oversight in this regard. It wasn't until the ad company asked me, because those last few days when we started dipping down, we were still positive. We, the lowest, our, the lowest as we hit was 2.2. Okay. Okay. Still positive. Right. Yeah. But we were trending down. Right. And I was like, we're coming from a 4.4 day. We're coming from a 5.5 ROAS day. We're coming, trending down to an average of like 4.8. The entire campaign was a 3.3 ROAS. The last week we hit a 2.2 and I was like, that's scary to me. Right. But it wasn't until the, la- the fourth to last day that the agency asked me, Eric, what's the limit you're willing to go? Are you okay with a one ROAS? And I said, 
that's fine. Then they asked me, Eric, are you okay to go below a one ROAS? Essentially buying your customers. Yeah. And I was like, holy crap. I should have just been going negative on a customer anyways. From the very beginning, regardless. Leverage the lifetime value. Exactly. Okay. Right. I should like, and because if we weren't going to already dipping to a 2.2 and even if we hit a 1.3, 1.0, even negative, what we're talking about a few dollars to acquire a customer at that point. Mm-hmm. And we still would have been overall positive in the entire marketing campaign that my total end our ROAS was 3.3. I probably would have ended up at a 2.5. Right. Cause it's the average. The average. It's not, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not the whole. I told the can I told the agency to slow down my ad spend in that last week because of the the things that were going on. And I'm like, that's the probably now I think about it, that's probably the one thing I regret um of not having done. So that's the one thing, like out of everything we did, I got a little scared at that point, but we should have just pushed through that we probably would have finished a lot stronger as well. We would have had that lifetime value. We probably skimped, like missed out on 500 customers right there. So yeah, I mean, most people, when they look at Kickstarter, you could look at a campaign, you can look at the end number. People are not profitable, right? Whether they have enough capital after the fact, whether the internal goal, I think we mentioned where, like I said, an investor said, you need to prove to us the the concept and the market is there, then we'll invest money for you. Some companies might have that available as an option to them. So you never know. I would not take Kickstarter campaigns at face value. Ours was pretty straightforward. I'll tell you now out of the 148, we came out about 25, $27,000 in profit, but I already reallocated about $15,000 back into that extra 5,000 in inventory, Mm -hmm. because you're talking about covering costs for the first 5,500 and I'm investing into the next batch of inventory already. So that's, that's being calculated in. So at the end, it's about a $10,000 supposed profit that we would put in. And to me, that's just enough capital to keep paying for my artists, keep paying for new graphics, pay for more cool commercials, invest into the idea of this cartoon and stuff. Because to me, it doesn't end here at the 148,000. It's, this is just the beginning. This is the 148,000 foundation that's just getting it off the ground. Yeah, it's a full business relationship. It's not a fling. You know, that's, that's something, that's another thing that I think needs to be impressed on people like this. Don't, don't try not to bring your one trick ponies Mm -hmm. because people will see that and it'll scare them. And it's not really good for customers. Um, Exactly. Stepping back a few steps, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is when starting a Kickstarter, uh, and this even happened to me and I know better, you see the numbers that you're spending on the ads, on the video, on all of this stuff. And for some reason, a lot of us forget that we're creating assets. We're creating reusable assets that are going to multiply our money that we almost never need to recreate. You know, we need to, we, I mean, we re-edit our video. I can't imagine. And we have a but we have a half a terabyte drive with 17 hours of video and audio. It's, a, it's amazing the assets that we have from this and the copy that just landed. It's, it's so, so awesome because we can just run with that stuff. Oh, so yeah. it really, really helps boost or kickstart you know, your, your, your marketing campaign. 
we i mean and, and i mean obviously this is easier said after the fact but like <clears throat> for how much we spent on the video i was like now i wish i spent more money on the video <laughs> i wish we now have another video i mean which we might we might be able to hire the same team and spend a little bit more budget for a crazier you know cart you know, video, like you said, we were able to recycle the, the assets we had. We put that same video or spice it and put it on our TikTok. And we got blessed with the TikTok algorithm algorithm. And we had, we have a million views on Incredible. combined two videos. It was like 850 on one and 250 on the other. And for us, it's just like, I mean, I really suck at TikTok. So it's like, I haven't done anything with it after the fact, but <laughs> the fact that we were able to just put up a video, take the chances, now we have almost like 10,000 followers. Actually, I don't know if that, if that number is true, but that was good. Even, even then just to start out with any TikTok account with that many followers without even asking for, yeah, 8,730 followers. It's like, cool. We have this potential foundation of, of a TikTok that we may or might not use. And I mean, to me, I would still tell people don't rely on it. That's really like the the sh shot in the dark, but yeah. Hey, now I, I get to tell people, yeah, we got a million views on our TikTok on this game. Yeah, that that I, in my opinion, the TikTok and I'm gonna say the fringe social medias is good for omnipresence. Like omnipresence. no one can escape you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for like bigger campaigns and stuff like that. But hey, if you if you can rock TikTok, do it, do it. People thought that the video we put up was like from an actual movie or a show. Really. They're like comment sections, like what show or what, what movie is this? What movie is this? What's the name of the movie? That's pretty cool. So we're like, and people are like, no, it's, this is actually an advertisement commercial. That's so good. That's so, so good. Yeah. Very cool. Eric, thank you so, so very much for taking the time and, and, and walking us through and, you know, showing us your cards on what it takes, giving us your opinion and just breaking it down for people that you've either done it before and want to see another perspective or someone that's thinking about dipping their toes and doing a Kickstarter, you know, even myself who has experience in it. I got a lot of insight on this conversation. So I thank you very much and best yeah. of luck, brother. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. It's always a pleasure talking to you and yeah, I hope we get to do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, brother. All right. Bye-bye.